Section 5 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 3, Part 1 Copernicus. To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful working of his laws, surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High, to whom ignorance cannot be more grateful than knowledge. Copernicus. When a prominent member of Congress, of slightly convivial turn, went to sleep on the floor of the House of Representatives, and suddenly awakening convulsed the assemblage by demanding in a loud voice, Where am I at? He propounded an inquiry that is indisputably a classic. With the very first glimmering of intelligence, and as far back as history goes, man has always asked that question. Also, three others. Where am I? Who am I? What am I here for? Where am I going? A question implies an answer, and so, coeval with the questioner, we find a class of volunteers springing into being, who have been taken upon themselves the business of answering the interrogations. And as partial payment for answering these questions, the man who answered has exacted a living from the man who asked. Also, titles, honors, gods, jewels, and obsequies. Further than this, the volunteer who answered has declared himself exempt from all useful labor. The volunteers are theologian. Walt Whitman has said, I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth. But we should note this fact. Whitman merely wanted to live with animals. He did not desire to become one. He wasn't willing to forfeit knowledge, and a part of that knowledge was that man has some things yet to learn from the patient brute. Much of man's misery has come from his persistent questioning. The book of Genesis is certainly right when it tells us that man's troubles come from a desire to know. The fruit of the tree of knowledge is bitter, and man's digestive apparatus is ill-conditioned to digest it. But still we are grateful, and good men never forget that it was woman who gave the fruit to man, men learning nothing alone. In the Garden of Eden, with everything supplied, man was an animal. When he was turned out and had to work, strive, struggle, and suffer, he began to grow. The volunteers of the Far East have told us that man's deliverance from the evils of life must come through killing desire. We will reach nirvana, rest, through nothingness. Within a decade, it has become born in upon a vast number of the thinking men of the world. The deliverance from sorrow and discontent was to be had not through ceasing to ask questions, but by asking one question more. The question is this, what can I do? When man went to work, action removed the doubt that theory could not solve. The rushing winds purify the air, only running water is pure, and the holy man, if there be such, is the one who loses himself in persistent, useful effort. By working for all, we secure the best results for self, 
and when we truly work for self, we work for all. In that thoughtful essay by Brooks Adams, The Law of Civilization and Decay, the author says, Thought is one of the manifestations of human energy, and among the earlier and simple phases of thought, two stand conspicuous, fear and greed. Fear, which by stimulating the imagination, creates a belief in an invisible world, and ultimately develops a priesthood. The priestly class evolves naturally, into being everywhere as man awakens and asks questions. Only the unknown is terrible, says Victor Hugo. We can cope with the known, and at the worst we can overcome the unknown by accepting it. Vereshchagin, the great painter who knew the psychology of war, as few have known, and went down to his death gloriously, as he should, on a sinking battleship, once said, In modern warfare, when man does not see the enemy, the poetry of the battle is gone. The man is rendered by the unknown into a quaking coward. But when enveloped into the fog of ignorance, every phenomenon of nature causes man to quake and tremble. He wants to know. Fear prompts him to ask. And greed, greed for power placed in self, answers. To succeed beyond the average is to realize a weakness in humanity and then bank on it. The priest who pacifies is as natural as the fear he seeks to assuage, as natural as man himself. So first, man is in bondage to his fear, and this bondage he exchanges for bondage to a priest. First, he fears the unknown. Second, he fears the priest who has power with the unknown. Soon the priest becomes a slave to the answers he has conquered forth. He grows to believe what he at first pretended to know. The punishment of every liar is that he eventually believes his lies. The mind of man becomes tinted and subdued to what he works in, like the dyer's hand. So we have a formula. Man in bondage to fear. Man in bondage to a priest. The priest in bondage to a creed. Then the priest and his institution become an integral part and parcel of the state, mixed in all its affairs. The success of the state seems to lie in holding belief intact and stilling all further questions of the people, transferring all doubts to this volunteer class which answers for a consideration. Naturally, the man who does not accept the answers is regarded as an enemy of the state, that is, the enemy of mankind. To keep this questioner down has been the problem of every religion, and the great problem of progress has been to smuggle the newly discovered truth past Cerberus, the priest, by preparing a sop that was to him palatable. From every branch of science, the priest has been routed, save in sociology alone. Here he has stubbornly made his last stand, and is saving himself alive by slowly accepting the situation and transforming himself into the promoter of a social club. The attempt to ascertain the truths of physical science outside of theology was, in the early ages, very seldom ventured. When men wanted to know anything about anything, they asked the priest. Questions that the priest could not answer, he declared, were forbidden of man to know. And when men attempted to find out for themselves, they were looked on as heretics. The early church regarded the earth as a flat surface with four corners. And in proof of their position, they quoted St. Paul, who wanted the gospel carried to the end of the earth. In fact, the universe was a house. The upper story was heaven, the lower story was the earth, and the cellar was hell. God, the angels, and the saved lived in heaven. Man lived on earth, 
and the devils and the damned had held to themselves. And there shall be no night here. And this was proven by the stars, who were regarded as peepholes through which mortals could catch glimpses of the wondrous light of heaven beyond. Hell was below, as was clearly shown by volcanoes, when the fierce fires occasionally forced themselves up through. Darkness to children is always terrible, and the night is regarded by them as the time of evil. Later, churchmen came to believe that the stars were jewels hung in the sky every night by angels, whose business it was to look after them. The word firmament means a solid dome or roof. This firmament, the sky, was supposed to be the floor of heaven. The firmament had four corners and rested on the mountains, as the eye could plainly see. When God's car was rolled across the floor, we heard thunder, and his movements were always accompanied by lightnings, winds, black clouds, and rain. All this so he could not be too plainly seen. Heaven was only a little way off, a few miles at the most, so there were attempts made at times by bad men to reach it. The Greeks had a story about Adelaide, who piled mountain upon mountain. The Bible story of the Tower of Babel is the same where the masons called mere mort, and those below sent up bricks. There is also an ancient Mexican legend of giants who built the pyramid of Cholula, and they would have been successful in their attempts if fire had not been thrown down upon them from heaven. In all holy writ we find accounts of ascensions, translations, annunciations, and mortals caught up in the clouds. Many people had actually seen angels ascending and descending, Messengers from on high and God's secretaries were constantly coming down on delicate errands. Everything that man did was noted and written down. We were watched all the time by unseen beings. The Bible tells of how the earth was eventually to be destroyed, and then there would be only heaven and hell. God, his son, and the angels were going to come down, and for ages men watched the heavens to see them appear. All sensitive children born of orthodox Christian parents, who heard the Bible read aloud, looked fearfully into the sky for signs and wonders. The Bible tells in several places of devils breaking out of hell and roaming over the earth. Dante fully believed this in his three-story house idea, and pictures with awful exactness the details, which he gained from the preaching of the priests. Dante was never honored by having his books placed on the index. On the contrary, he got his vogue largely through the recommendation of the priests. To them he was a true scientist, for he corroborated their statements. The Christian fathers ridiculed the idea of the earth being round, because, if this were so, how could the people on the other side see the Son of Man when he came in the sky? Besides that, if the earth were round and turned on its axis, we would all fall off into space. The idea that there was an ocean above the earth and the heavens was brought forward to show the goodness and wisdom of God. Without this, there would be no rain, and hence no vegetation, and man would soon perish. In Genesis we read that God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And in Psalms, Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Then we hear, The windows of heaven were opened. So this thought of the waters above the earth were fully proved, accepted, and fixed, 
and to pray for rain was quite a natural thing. The English prayer book contains such prayers up to within a very few years ago, and in 1883, the governor of Kansas set apart a day upon which the people were to pray that God would open the windows of heaven and send them rain. They also prayed to be delivered from grasshoppers, just as in Queen Elizabeth's time, the prayer book had this, From the Turk and the Comet, Good Lord Deliver Us. In the 6th century, Cosmos, one of the saints, wrote a complete explanation of the phenomenon of the heavens. To account for the movement of the sun, he said God had his angels push it across the firmament and put behind a mountain each night, and the next morning it was brought out on the other side. He met every objection by citations from Job, Genesis, Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes, and the New Testament, and wound up with an athema upon any or all who doubted or questioned in this matter of astronomy. The whole Christian idea of the universe was simple, plain, and plausible. The child mind could easily accept it, and when backed up by the holy book written at God's dictation, word for word, infallible and absolutely true in every part, one does not wonder that progress was practically blocked for 1,400 years. But the real miracle is that it was not blocked forever. Thousands of years before Christ, the Chinese had mapped the heavens and knew the movements of the planets so well that they correctly prophesied the positions of the various constellations many years in advance. 2,500 years before our Christian era, a Chinese governor put to death the astronomers Hai and Ho because they had failed to foretell an eclipse, quite according to the excellent celestial plan of killing the doctor when the patient dies. Sir William Hamilton points out the fact that the Chinese, 5,000 years ago, knew astronomy as well as we do, and that Christian astrology grew out of Chinese astronomy in an effort to foretell the fortunes of men. Fear wants to know the future, and astrology and priesthood are synonymous terms. Since the business of the priest has always been to prophecy, a profession he has not yet discarded. Their prophecies are at present innocuous and lightly heeded. They preach that perfect faith will move a mountain, but energetic railroad builders of today find it quicker and cheaper to tunnel. A certain type of man accepts a certain theory. The Christian view of creation was practically the conception of the Greeks before Thales. This wise man, in the 6th century before Christ, taught that the earth was round and that certain stars were also worlds. He showed that the earth was round and proved it by the disappearance of the ship as it sailed away. He located the earth, moon, and sun so perfectly that he prophesied an eclipse, and when it took place, it so terrified the Medes and the Lydians who were in battle with each other that they threw down their arms and made peace. Thales had explained that Atlas carried the world on his shoulder, but he didn't explain what Atlas stood upon. Pythagoras, one of the pupils of Thales, followed the idea still further, showed that the moon derived its light from the sun, that the earth was a globe, and turned daily on its axis. He held that the sun was the center of the universe and that the planets revolved around it. Anaxagoras followed a few years later than Pythagoras, and became convinced that the sun was merely a ball of fire, and therefore should not be worshipped, that it follows a natural law, that nothing ever happens by chance, 
and that to pray for rain is absurd. For his honesty in expressing what he thought was truth, the priests of Athens had Anaxagoras and his family exiled in perpetual banishment from Athens, and all of his books were burned. Plato touched on astronomy, for he touches on everything, and fully believed that the earth was round. His pupil, Aristotle, taught all that Anaxagoras taught, and if he also had not been exiled, but had been free to study, investigate, and express himself, he would have come very close to the truth. Hipparchus, a hundred years after Aristotle, calculated the length of the year to within six minutes, discovered the procession of equinoxes, and counted all the stars he could see, making a map of them. Seventy years after Christ, Ptolemy, a Greco-Egyptian, but not the royal line of Ptolemies, published his great book, The Almagest. For over 14 centuries, it was the textbook for the best astronomers. It taught that the Earth was the center of the universe, and that the sun and the planets revolve around it. There were many absurdities, however, that had to be explained, and the priests practically rejected the whole book as pagan and taught an astronomy their own, founded entirely upon the Bible. They wanted an explanation that would be accepted by the common people. This astronomy was not designed to be very scientific, exact, or truthful. All they asked was, is it plausible? Expediency to theology has always been much more important than truth. Besides, said St. Basil, what boots it concerning all this conjecture about the stars, since the earth is soon to come to an end, as is shown by our holy scriptures, and man's business is to prepare his soul for eternity? This was the general attitude of the church. Exact truth was a matter of indifference. And if science tended to unseat man's faith in the Bible, and in God's most holy religion, then so much worse for science. It will thus plainly be seen why the church felt compelled to fight science. The very life of the church was at stake. The church was the vital thing, not truth. If truth could be taught without unseating faith, why well, all right. But anything that made men doubt must be rooted out at any cost. And that is why priests have opposed science. Not that they hate science less, but that they love the church more. From the time of Ptolemy to that of Copernicus, 1400 years, theology practically dictated the learning of the world. And to Copernicus must be given the credit of having really awakened the science of astronomy from her long and peaceful sleep. The little land that we know as Poland has produced some of the finest and most acute intellects the world has ever known. Tragic and bloodstained is her history, and this tragedy, perhaps, has been the prime factor in the evolution of her men of worth. Poland has been stamped upon and pushed apart, and a persecuted people produce a pride of race that has its outcrop in occasional genius. Recently we heard of the great Paderewski playing before the Tsar, and His Majesty, in a speech meant to be very complimentary, congratulated the company that so great a genius as he was a citizen of Russia. Your Majesty, I am not a Russian, I am a Pole, was the proud reply. The Tsar replied, smiling, There is no such country as Poland. Now there is only Russia. And Paderewski replied, Pardon my hasty remark, you speak but truth. And then he played Chopin's Funeral March, a dirge not only to the great men of Poland gone, 
but to Poland herself. Nicholas Copernicus was born at the quaint old town of Thorn, in Poland, February 19th, 1473. The family name was Kobernik, but Nicholas Latinized it when he became of age, and seemingly separated from his immediate kinsmen forever. His father was a merchant, fairly prosperous, and only in the line of money-making was he ambitious. In the Kobernik's ran a goodly strain of Jewish blood, but a generation before, pressure and expediency seemed to combine, so that the family, as we first see them, were Christians. No soil can grow genius, no seed can produce it. It springs into being in spite of all laws and rules and regulations. No hovel is safe from it, says Whistler. The portraits of Copernicus reveal a man of most marked personality. Proud, handsome, self-contained, intellectual. The head is massive, eyes full, luminous, wide apart. His nose large and bold, chin strong, the mouth alone revealing a trace of the feminine, as though the man were the child of his mother. This mother had a brother who was a bishop, and the mother's ambition for her boy was that he should eventually follow in the footsteps of this illustrious brother who was known for a hundred miles as a preacher of marked ability. So we hear of the young man being sent to the University of Krakow as the preliminary to a great career. The father bitterly opposed the idea of taking his son out of the practical world of business, and this evidently led to the breach that caused young Nicholas to discard the family name. That Nicholas did not fully enter into his mother's plans is shown that while at Krakow he devoted himself mostly to medicine. He was so proficient in this that he secured a physician's degree, and having been given leave to practice, he revealed his humanity by declining to do so, turning to mathematics with a fine frenzy. This disposition to drop on a thing, turn loose on it, concentrate, and reduce it to a chaos is the true distinguishing mark of genius. The difference in men does not lie in the size of their heads, nor in the perfection of their bodies, but in this one sublime ability of concentration, to throw the weight with the blow, live an eternity in an hour. This one thing I do. Copernicus at 21 was teaching mathematics at Krakow, and by his extraordinary ability in this one direction had attracted the attention of various learned men. In fact, the authorities of the college had grown a bit boastful of their star student, and when visiting dignitaries arrived, young Copernicus was given chalk and blackboard and put through his paces. Problems involving a dozen figures and many fractions were worked out by him with a directness and precision that made him the wonder of that particular part of the world. The science of trigonometry was invented by Copernicus, and we see that early in his twenties he was well on the heels of it, for he then arranged a quadrant to measure the height of standing trees, steeples, buildings, or mountains. For rest and recreation he painted pictures. A college professor from Bologna, traveling through Krakow, met Copernicus, and greatly impressed with his powers, invited him to return with him to Bologna and there give a course of lectures on mathematics. Copernicus accepted, and at Bologna met the astronomer Novera. This meeting was the turning point of his life. Copernicus was then 23 years of age, but in intellect he was a man. He had vowed a year before that he would indulge in no trivial conversation 
about persons and things. Only the great and noble things should interest him and occupy his attention. With commonplace or ignorant people, he held no converse. He had remarkable beauty of person and great dignity, and his presence at Bologna won immediate respect for him. Men accept other men at the estimate they place upon themselves. In listening to lectures by Novara, he perceived at once how mathematics could be made valuable by calculating the movement of stars. Novara taught the Ptolemaic theory of astronomy for the esoteric few. The church is made up of men, and while priests, for the most part, are quite content to believe what the church teaches, yet it has ever been recognized that there was one doctrine for the few and another for the many, the esoteric and the exoteric. The esoteric is an edged tool, and only a very few are fit to handle it. The charge of heresy is only for those who are so foolish as to give out these edge tools to the people. You may talk about anything you want, provided you do not do it, and you may do anything you want, provided you do not talk about it. The proposition that the earth was flat, had four corners, and the stars were jewels hung in the sky as signs, and removed about by angels, was all right for the many, but now and then there were priests who were not content with these child stories. They wanted truth, and these usually accepted the theories of Ptolemy. Novara believed that the earth was a globe, that this globe was the center of the universe, and that around the earth the sun, moon, and certain stars revolved. The fixed stars he still regarded as being hung against the firmament, and that this firmament was turned in some mysterious way in mass. Copernicus listened silently, but his heart beat fast. He had found something upon which he could exercise his mathematics. He and Novara sat up all night in the belfry of the cathedral and watched the stars. They saw that they moved steadily, surely, and without caprice. It was all natural and could be reduced, Copernicus thought, to a mathematical system. Astrology and astronomy were not then divorced. It was astrology that gave us astronomy. The angel that watched over a star looked after all persons who were born under that star's influence, or else appointed some other angel for the purpose. Every person had a guardian angel to protect him from the evil spirits that occasionally broke out of hell and came up to earth to tempt men. Mathematics knows nothing of angels. It only knows what it can prove. Copernicus believed that, if certain stars did move, they moved by some unalterable law of their own. In riding on a boat, he observed that the shores seemed to be moving past, and he concluded that a part, at least, of the seeming movements of planets might possibly be caused by the moving of the earth. In talking with astrologers, he perceived that very seldom did they know anything of mathematics, and this ignorance on their part caused him to doubt them entirely. His faith was in mathematics, the thing that could be proved, and he came to the conclusion that astronomy and mathematics were one thing, and that astrology and child stories another. He remained at Bologna just long enough to turn the astrologers out of the Society of Astronomers. Novara's lectures on astronomy were given in Latin, and in truth all learning was locked up in his tongue. But astrology and the theological fairy tales of the people floated free. They were part of the vagrant hagiology of the roadside preachers, 
who with lurid imagination said the things they thought would help carry conviction home and make believers. End of Section 5 Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard